This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Jesus talks and Jesus acts. And we've talked a lot in recent episodes about what Jesus said. Now we need to talk about some of the things he did, some of the things he does. This comes hot off the heels of his bread of life discourse and then his complaints about the wrong attitudes the Pharisees had. First remark, we have the Canaanite woman's faith. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So that's the first one. The second one is also from Mark. Jesus cures a deaf man. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they besought him to lay his hand upon him. And taking him aside from the multitude privately, he put his fingers into his ears and he spat and touched the ground. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathah which is be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And he charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the dumb speak. Okay, so those are the first two from Mark. We're going to come back later with a third miracle story from Matthew. But let's pause here on these first. There's a number of things happening here. One thing that's happening here is that these miracles are ratcheting up questions about Jesus's identity. He has started out doing and saying some shocking things. He multiplied bread. He walked on water. He forgave sins, saying, I am. He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he critiqued the religious leaders of his time. So people are increasingly asking, Who is this? Jesus likes to answer questions with actions even more powerfully than with words. And so, after answering the question with words in the synagogue and with words about the practices of the Pharisees, this week he's answering with actions. We see him first curing a Gentile woman's daughter. Each of those is important. She is a Gentile, she is not a Jewish person, and that means his mission is expanding 
But we can't help notice a couple other things. First of all, she's not a man. And second of all, it's not her son that she's asking to be cured. Just like Jairus' daughter, this is a cure of a woman, only now it's a mom, a pagan mom, asking for the cure of her pagan daughter in a pagan land. Next, we're going to see the cure of the deaf mute man also in a pagan land. And that's one of the instances where Mark or Peter, his boss, vividly remembers the original non-Greek word Jesus used to cure the man, saying what he says to all of us, be opened. But let's start with the Canaanite woman. Maybe you cringed a little when you heard in this story that Jesus was interacting with this pagan woman and calling her a dog. I know that's caused me to cringe for much of my life. But the key to understanding the story is to realize that Jesus Christ is God and the Canaanite woman knows it. The gospel is truly harsh here if you don't understand that. First, when the woman calls out to Jesus for help, he says nothing to her. He just ignores her. But she won't leave him alone. His disciples ask Jesus to get rid of her, and he seems to try to do just that, telling her he is only there for the Jews. Then, when she still won't leave him alone, he says it's not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. Only when she accepts his dog analogy does he relent and give her the cure she is asking for. But St. John Chrysostom explains it this way. Christ's words were not spoken as an insult. Instead, they were spoken for the purpose of calling forth her virtue and revealing the giant treasure of faith that she had within. End quote. She knows Jesus can help her, and she asks. When he compares her to a dog, she accepts that she is far below the level of God. She knows God has been giving her what she needs her whole life long, and she bets that he won't stop now, and her bet pays off. O woman, great is your faith, Jesus says. Let it be done for you as you wish. The woman has done the one fundamental thing that is necessary in prayer. She has let God be God instead of putting herself in his place. It's easy to pray to God like he is just waiting for our commands. We want him to do things our way. We often think that his job is to be loyal to us, forgive our mistakes, and be ready to step in and help us out when things get bad for us. Ironically, we think it sounds rude to call the Canaanite woman a dog, but the way we treat God is often just the way we treat a really good dog. We say, go fetch, good God. Now come and console me. And that's a horrifying way to treat God. Jesus wanted to teach us the opposite. Remember, uh, as St. John Chrysostom went on to say, when he called her a dog, he knew what she would say. End quote. So Jesus let the Canaanite woman show her faith to the world. We pray we can rise to her level and do the same. But the words that bother us about what he says to this woman are not about who God is willing to help or not. It's about who is willing to let God help them or not. In fact, you could apply his words directly to ourselves in this way. Jesus sees the church and he knows it as a Gentile mother begging to save her children. And the biggest problem for the church in the 21st century is that she is too proud to beg, that we are too proud to beg. 
That may be putting it too bluntly, but what kind of mother is the church? In Revelations 12, the sign in the heaven tells us the church is like Mary, a glorious mother who suffers and needs God's protection and care. St. Paul says the same in Galatians when he talks about his labor pains for his people, making the church a laboring mother suffering for her children. We've seen Jesus give several more images of the church that expand on this theme of the suffering church. He gave the analogy of the fisherman's net, the field sown with wheat and weeds, and then demonstrated what he meant in the multiplication of the loaves and in the boat in the storm. Today, we get another figure of the church. St. Remigius, who's quoted by St. Thomas Aquinas, says the Canaanite woman, quote, is a figure of the Holy Church gathered out of the Gentiles. And he adds that this woman came out of her own country just as the Holy Church departed from former errors and sins, end quote. So the gospel wants us to see the church in the Canaanite woman, then we have a great new image showing us what the church today needs to be like. First, the church needs to be urgent, knowing her children are in the grip of Satan. Jesus is on his way between Jewish regions, passing through Gentile countries, when the mother comes to plead to him. Love is what compels her. Anyone who has been a parent knows how terrified she must feel. Her daughter is literally possessed, severely possessed, as she puts it. But this is what is happening to so many souls today. We're not literally possessed by the devil. We don't have to be possessed by the devil because we've given ourselves over to choose which one, money, sex, power, material comfort, bodily pleasure, and radical individualism. Our children are possessed by drugs in some cases, social media in some cases, addiction to pornography or video games in some cases. The church's job, number one, is to go out of her way to plead urgently for the souls that are being destroyed. Only love compelled the Canaanite mother to do that, and only love can compel us to do so. Second, the church has to have a faith that transcends social work. The woman gets nothing but resistance from the apostles, and so she turns to Jesus. Lord, help me, she says. She knows the power of her adversary, and she believes in the power of her Savior. A church that doesn't recognize the divine nature of Jesus won't recognize the demonic nature of evil either. As Leon Blois puts it, and as uh, Pope Francis quoted in his first homily, anyone who does not pray to the Lord prays to the devil. The church needs the faith of the Canaanite woman to know she is overmatched by the power of sin and needs God desperately. Third, the church needs the hope that only the humble can have. Jesus in the story and in real life might say some words that turn a proud person away. In this case of the story, and maybe he had a twinkle in his eye, he says, it is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. And, but the woman accepts that. She's not too proud to understand that she's not Jesus Christ's highest priority. This is a woman who knows who she is, maybe more than we do, She's a beggar for grace at God's feet. She also knows that God will give her what she needs, that God wants to give her what she needs. Does the church today have that kind of humility? Do we consider ourselves lucky to get grace like dogs under a table? Or are we more like the apostles who tell those who are spiritually desperate to leave us alone? We're busy. Give us our time with Jesus. Go away. Fourth, we need to realize that we are not God's darlings. 
St. Paul in his letter to the Romans speaks about the greatness of the Jews, the chosen people, and says they are still the chosen people to some degree. The gifts and the call of God are irrevocable, he says. The Gentiles he is preaching to in Rome and us are God's plan B. We're the backup plan. And all we have from him, we have by his mercy. Isaiah prophesied that God's salvation will be offered to foreigners, us, and that the house he builds for us on a holy mountain will be a house of prayer. And that's exactly the passage Jesus refers to when he cleanses the temple, overturns tables, and drives money changers out. St. Jerome points out that he doesn't complain that money is making his house of prayer into a den of thieves, but that money is making it into a place of business. And isn't that too often the church today? clinging to bureaucracy and the institutions that were founded for evangelical purposes to save souls by teaching them in schools and healing them in hospitals, but now exist to perpetuate themselves without their transcendent motives? The church too often glad hands the complacent, careful not to offend the faithless, while the daughters and sons of the faithless fall deeper into the embrace of Satan. But this spunky woman from Canaan has a lot to teach the church about how we should be behaving today. She never forgets her place, but she's strong and forceful on behalf of her daughter. One commentator even says she has the gift of cheerfulness. Not only does she not forget her place, but she doesn't let it get her down. She smiles, one imagines, as she comes back at Christ and says, even the dogs get the scraps under the table. She can hold her own with Christ while never forgetting that he owes her nothing. Speaking to the conclave that would elect him Pope, Pope Francis gave two images of the church. When the church focuses on herself, she becomes like the deformed woman of the gospel, the bent old woman in Luke, as we'll see later, who's stuck looking at her own navel. He said he wanted to be the fruitful mother who can go out from herself with the sweet and comforting joy of evangelizing. Can we do that? The church isn't some distant group of men and mitres. It's each of us. We all have neighbors who are in the thrall of great evil, or maybe we have children who are, or maybe we are. Do we bring this to Jesus urgently, insistently, refusing to take no for an answer? O woman, great is your faith, is what he says to the Canaanite woman. And then he gives her a reverse fiat. Let it be done for you as you wish. He'll do the same for anybody who follows her example. Which brings us to our next miracle story, Jesus healing the deaf and mute man. The healing of the deaf mute man is kind of an object lesson. First of all, it talks about how he returned to Galilee by way of Sidon. So Jesus is taking a roundabout journey to meet the deaf man. And this is much like what the Son of God has done with salvation history and the incarnation, taking a roundabout way to meet us. In the first reading, God builds anticipation in his people by telling them through the prophet, God himself comes to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf will be cleared. Then will the lame leap like a stag. Then the tongue of the mute will sing. It teaches us something very important about God. He is coming, and the first ones to meet him will be the weak, broken, and forgotten. This should be the church's top priority today, but it often isn't. The deaf man would never have met Jesus 
and had been touched with him had not others brought him to God. In fact, many people today don't meet Jesus because you and I don't ever bother to bring them to him. Pope Benedict used to say that the one word in today's gospel, that ephatha, that be opened, sums up Christ's entire mission. I think he's right for a couple reasons. First, Jesus' actions sum up what God wants from us. It's no coincidence that he focuses on the ears and the mouth. Sin in our lives crowds God out. The more we grow accustomed to sin, the harder it is for us to hear the voice of conscience. At several points in the New Testament, he says, those who have ears, let them hear. The opening that he wants from us is the ability to receive and appropriate his teachings and commands. All around us are people just like that deaf man in the Decapolis, stuck in a silent, Christless world, unable to hear the voice of God, far from the thoroughfares where the church is reaching out. In the gospel, the people were exceedingly astonished. They said, he has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And if we let him, he will exceedingly astonish people in our day also. But he precisely opens the mouth and the ears of the man. St. Benedict made the virtue of listening closely and speaking carefully key virtues in the monastic life. They are also key workplace virtues and key home virtues. We need to hear people and say things such that they will hear us. Our Lady was good at that. Mary, we are told several times, pondered these things in her heart. When she was confronted with the mysteries of God's action in the world, she listened and pondered. Her highest praise that she got from Jesus was, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And when she spoke, she spoke boldly. She spoke to the angel, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. And at Cana, she said, do whatever he tells you. And when her relatives were complaining about Jesus, she took them straight to her. It seems like when she spoke, it was often to direct people to listen. Christians need to learn her style, especially today. Christians need to be opened in ear and tongue, especially today. In the 1950s and 1960s, well above 90% of Americans believed in God. But now, according to Gallup, only 81% believe. It's not terrible, but not great. Not believing in God is different from declaring yourself an atheist, though. Pew Research suggests that this, too, is on the rise. People declaring themselves an atheist. But I'm not sure which is worse. People who declare themselves atheists are people who tend to want to argue. It's no coincidence that simultaneous with the rise in disbelief in God, Bishop Robert Barron's Word on Fire ministry and Father Michael Schmitz's Bible in a Year and a constellation of Catholic formation apostolates are preparing us to provide answers because these, some of these people are willing to listen and they want to have their say. So we need to be willing to listen to them and answer back. But there's also this group of non-believers who don't want to argue Jonathan Rauch wrote an article in The Atlantic years ago and said he invented the term apathyism at a party after a couple of glasses of Merlot when someone asked his religion. I was going to say atheist, but I stopped myself. 
I used to call myself an atheist, I said, and I still don't believe in God. But the larger truth is that it has been years since I really cared one way or another. I'm, and that's when the term hit me, he said, an apatheist. Ross Douthat addressed the phenomenon in the New York Times. The very act of declaring yourself an atheist, he said, suggests a particularly high level of interest in religious detail and debate, higher than many self-described Methodist or cradle Catholics who have a vague belief in God and show up at church on holidays, and also higher than many non-believers who are merely indifferent to religion, end quote. If you think you can safely dismiss God from your life, you become very hard to reach. You become very much like this man who is both deaf and mute. But God knows that nobody is completely apathetic. Polling finds that non-believers turn to prayer in crisis. Our job is to remain in people's lives so that when this happens, we can be ready to help them listen and speak and find a way forward. But we do need to learn. We do need this grace of being open to this ephatha from today's gospel. Because many are, with good evidence, blaming the rise of unbelief on the angry, name-calling incivility of the Trump presidency or of the Christian right or of the conservatives in general, or on the other hand, of the angry left and the Biden presidency and the polarization on both sides. They said Christians have started to become known for their opposition to others, not their love for others. However it happened, it's certain that an overwhelming majority of young people see Christians as judgmental and uncharitable, which is truly a crisis. St. John Henry Newman described how the virtue of being opened works in a real Christian's life. He said the heart is commonly reached not through the reason, but through the imagination. Persons influence us, voices melt us, looks subdue us, deeds inflame us. Ultimately, reason is just the necessary intellectual corollary to our real argument, which is our witness of love. And there's only one place to find that. Which brings us to the second way that Ephatha story sums up the way God acts in our lives, through the sacraments. Jesus deals sacramentally with the deaf-mute. He performs signs that convey what they signify. He puts his fingers into the ears of a deaf man and he applies his spittle to his tongue. Just as sacraments have matter and form, composed of real material on the one hand and specific words on the other, Jesus' signs in this story, accompanied by the word meaning be opened, give the man the ability to hear and speak. These signs are so powerful that they are repeated in the rite of baptism. The priest touches the ears and mouth of each newly baptized person, commanding him or her to hear and speak. But all the sacraments act this way. The priest says, I baptize you, applies water, and we are incorporated into God's family. The priest says, I absolve you, and we are absolved. The priest says, this is my body, and the host becomes the body and blood of Christ. And then we are all like the deaf mute in the gospel, coming forward to be touched and healed by Jesus. Jesus healed the deaf man by putting his finger on his tongue. At Mass, we are healed when the body of Christ is placed on our tongue. And that's where these two stories come together. 
When Jesus tests the Canaanite woman's faith by saying, it is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs, the Canaanite woman said, even the dogs get the scraps from the table. The food for the children is primarily the Eucharist, which is like the sacrament of the bread of the presence, which was provided by the temple, which is the heavenly manna, which was provided from heaven. So we should all identify with a Canaanite woman when we receive the Eucharist. We are God's plan B people. His plan A was his children of God, the Jewish people. We're plan B. We're Gentiles. And before we receive communion, we should say exactly what the Canaanite woman said. And in fact, we do. In the prayer before we receive communion, we say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. Repeating the words of yet another Gentile in the gospel. And we mean exactly what the Canaanite woman said. But then we add, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. We insist on what we can get from Jesus Christ, just like the Canaanite woman. We should feel unbelievably blessed to be able to approach Jesus, truly present in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in communion. Which brings us to one final miracle. Actually, I'm going to put it in a little bit of context first. This is from Matthew. Jesus cures many people. And Jesus went on from there and passed along the Sea of Galilee. And he went up into the hills and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the dumb, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the throng wondered when they saw the dumb speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So here is truly the good news of the gospel. This is where Isaiah's promises are coming true. He said, Thus says the Lord, say to those whose hearts are frightened, be strong, fear not. Here is your God. He comes with vindication. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared. Then will the lame leap like a stag. It's an irresistible idea. The God who created us and loves us sometimes seems so far away, but no longer. He's coming. Isaiah continues with exhilarating imagery. Streams will burst forth in the desert and rivers in the steppe. Talk about good news. The vindication of God's faithful believers is great news. And at long last, we're literally seeing it come true. But then in Mark, we hear about this cure of a blind man at Bethsaida. And it should give us, it should help us start to realize exactly what's expected on our side of this. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands upon them, he asked him, do you see anything? All right, so this is significant so far. He leads him out of the village by the hand. Can you imagine being blind and Jesus Christ is stopping and leading you by the hand out of the village? He takes him away from the noise and the bustle and the busyness of the city, away from the commerce and the crowds and the chaos, and out into this quieter place, a calmer place. Then he spits in his eyes and asks if he is restored. Mark continues. And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then again, he laid his hands upon him, and he looked intently and was restored and saw everything clearly. 
and he sent him away to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Well, that's significant. That God sometimes can't heal our blindness totally right away. It happens in stages. That's true of all of us. It's the law of gradualism. He does this for each of us. He takes us apart by ourselves, lays on his hands again and again, maybe spits in our eyes, as much as it takes. And he says, do you see? And at first, it's almost comical. The guy sees what it looks like trees to him, because I guess he's never seen trees or people before. And bit by bit, he's cured. Then he's told, go home to your family. Go to your resting place. Go to your home. Don't even go to the village. Just go home. To put all the Gospels together, imagine the Canaanite woman returning to her home where her daughter is finally cured. Imagine the deaf and mute man returning to his home, finally able to speak. And imagine the man whose sight was restored returning to his home, finally seeing his family. And imagine you returning to your home a home freed from the demon-haunted past that it had, freed from the impediments that made it impossible to communicate, freed from the faults that made it impossible for you to see one another. Today's gospel is a great template for what happens to us when we're reconverted, recommitted to Christ. First of all, in order to get there, we have to be humble, We have to be little, is how one woman explained it to me. She went to be healed by sisters whose prayers had successfully healed several people, and she got nothing. She said her crippling condition continued because I still have to learn to be little. Maybe for other reasons too, who knows, but the people cured in these gospels were all little. They accepted their place in life. They didn't dictate any of their own terms to Jesus. They let Jesus take them out of the village, and there, with him, they were healed. It wasn't their doing. It isn't our doing. It's Christ's. He touches us. He looks to heaven. He groans. He commands our ears be opened. The movement to Christ isn't us exerting effort. The gospel shows it's Jesus exerting all the effort. He loosens not just our ears to hear him, but our tongues to speak about him. He gives us the ability to speak about him, and he sets the terms there too, saying, tell everyone or tell no one. Jesus exerts the effort, and all we have to do is to let our lives be swept up in his life, to let him lead us out of our path onto his path, to let our story merge with his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.